still at large, unsolved British murders. Hello and welcome to this podcast series looking at unsolved British murders. Each episode will take a look at an individual murder or series of killings that, despite the efforts of the various constabularies involved, have, for whatever reason, never been solved. In most cases, the perpetrator is probably still at large. Series 2, Episode 2 The Hammersmith Nude Murders, a.k.a. Jack the Stripper London was a city undergoing a massive change. World War II had reduced much of the capital to rubble, and the rebuilding of it was the primary focus of the 1950s. Towards the end of the 50s, the optimism of the newly rebuilt city led to an explosion of opulence and opportunity. It was also a fertile breeding ground for organised crime. The two major crime families were the Crays, who intimidated and bullied the communities north of the River Thames, and the Richardsons, who did the same to the south of the river. Whilst these two gangs of thugs leached their livelihoods from the businesses in their territories, a serial murderer was beginning a reign of violence against the working girls of London. His methods would lead him to being dubbed Jack the Stripper by the press, although their series of killings is more correctly known as the Hammersmith Nude Murders. As with all of these historical cases, there is doubt over the exact number of victims, and the suspect list is an extraordinary assortment of ne'er-do-wells, celebrities, and rather unusually in this case, police officers. There are links to certain high-profile cases, political intrigues, organised crime and the pornography industry. And there is also the distressing loss of evidence to contend with. Whilst all of these factors add a certain frisson of excitement to the case, it cannot be forgotten that at the front and centre of this tragic tale are the deaths of numerous young women. Part 1. The Victims In the early hours of the 17th of June, 1959, two police officers making a regular patrol of Duke's Meadow, Chiswick, found the body of Elizabeth Figg. Duke's Meadow is a large area of open ground that functions as a sports ground, a park and a secluded area enjoyed by lovers and as a convenient location for prostitutes to take their clients. And this was the reason for the police patrol. Metropolitan police officers would patrol on foot as part of a regular beat. Part of their beat took them along the towpath between the River Thames and Dan Mason Drive. In the scrubland there, they discovered Elizabeth. Her shirt had been torn open to the waist and she was missing her underwear, shoes and all of her personal belongings, including her handbag. She had been killed by asphyxiation due to manual strangulation. Elizabeth was just 21 when her life was cut brutally short. Across the Thames, from where she was murdered, sits a pub, The Ship. During the investigation into her murder, the couple who ran it reported that they had seen the lights of a car in that area around 12.05am. The car parked up and the lights went off. Shortly afterwards, they reportedly heard a woman's scream. It seems that this was Elizabeth being murdered. When she was found, propped up against a tree by the path, she was facing the ship. It is reported 
that she was found sitting peacefully against the tree, but abrasions on her hands and dirt on her feet seemed to indicate a violent struggle immediately prior to her death. Her blouse had been torn open to expose her breasts, and the killer had used his hands to strangle her. Elizabeth was known to be pimped by a Trinidadian man, former boxer Fenton Baby Ward. He had a history of violence, and at the time, his race would have been enough to cause suspicion. He was extensively interviewed, but he was eliminated from the inquiry. As Elizabeth was a prostitute, her murder received little coverage, and because of her occupation, there was little sympathy, and despite a large number of people being interviewed, no one was ever charged. Elizabeth's murder remains unsolved. Life in London moved on. The 1960s started with the usual fanfare and new decade elicits, and whilst the early part of the decade was an uncertain mix of the old and the new, by 1963 a four-piece band from Liverpool had made its first number one record, Please Please Me, making the Beatles a household name. Society was changing. The traditionalism of the 1950s was giving way to a more permissive undercurrent, and the bright lights of London were a draw for many. One of these was Gwyneth Reeves. In 1957, she had moved from Barry in South Wales to live with her sister in Canvey, London. She was 16 when she moved there, and her time seems to have been quite chaotic, with two children being born, neither of whom were raised by Gwyneth. She took a job in a shoe factory and had begun to work as a prostitute. On September the 29th, Gwyneth was seen getting into a white van. At the time, it is said that she was pregnant and looking for an abortionist to perform the duty of ending her pregnancy. It was the last time she was seen alive. Although the Second World War had been over for 18 years, large areas of London were still being redeveloped and many wastelands, former bomb sites, were dotted across the capital. Often these became car parks and unmanaged dumps for household rubbish. As the redevelopment continued, the sites were cleared ahead of building. One of these sites was in Mortlake, near to the River Thames. As the corporation workers were clearing the area, their digger cut through the rubbish pile and hoisted into the air the remains of Gwyneth Reese. She had been stripped of all her clothing except one stocking. It wasn't unusual for the corpses of the homeless to be discovered amongst the wastelands, but Gwyneth had been stripped and buried. This was no cause of exposure or infirmity. This was clearly a murder. The scene had been destroyed by the efforts to clear the area, and the body, already fragile from weeks of decomposition, had been decapitated by the shovel of the digger. A careful forensic examination was undertaken, and during the course of it, it was discovered that she was missing several teeth, and there was, on the remnants of her neck, evidence of strangulation with a ligature. She had suffered a violent assault that had ended in her death and burial in a rubbish dump. The investigation turned to her pimp, a violent criminal associate of the craze, Cornelius Connie Whitehead. Whitehead was known as a bully and a thug who used violence to control the women he prostituted, and after Gwyneth had gone missing, he had, reportedly, been looking for her to teach her a lesson. Because she had disappeared in late September and had, with that disappearance, cut off his income. The investigation led nowhere though, 
and the police could not find any evidence of his involvement with the crime. How much of it was a genuine lack of evidence, and how much of it was the conspiracy of silence that surrounded the craze and their associates is not clear, but Whitehead was dropped as a suspect. Alibis for members of the Cray gang were readily available, and members of the criminal fraternity were well versed in deliberately misleading the police. Even if he had been responsible for her murder, the distorted loyalty and fear of retribution was enough to obfuscate completely. With the scene of her deposition having been unwittingly destroyed, and the chief suspect protected by a wall of silence and dubious alibis, Gwyneth Rees became the second unsolved murder of a prostitute in a small location in London. Although not formally linked at the time, there were some detectives who had begun to speculate due to the public deposition. It's a curious thing though. One had been left where she had been murdered in the open, exposed, possibly as a sexual humiliation, and the other had been buried on Wasteland. They're quite different. They're both unsolved. 86 days would pass before the next young woman was found murdered in the area. As the Thames meanders through London, it plays home to many aquatic activities and businesses. It's a very busy waterway and always has been. In the early 60s, as today, many rowing and sailing clubs exist along the banks. One of these is the London Corinthian Sailing Club, and following the destruction of their original clubhouse by a Nazi V-1 rocket, they had, at the start of the 60s, relocated to the grander location of Linden House, a fine Georgian townhouse with a commanding view of the Thames. On a fine and unseasonably warm 2nd of February, several boats set out for a jaunt along the river. They set off towards Hammersmith, but the journey for one of the crews was interrupted when they discovered an object in the water that appeared to be a body. The river had wedged the body of a young woman against a floating pontoon, and when she was recovered, she was found to be nude apart from her stockings, which had been pulled down to her ankles. Within a short time, this, as yet unidentified woman, was found to have lost some of her teeth, and her underwear had been forced into her mouth and down her throat. Her body showed signs of partial strangling, but water in her lungs indicated that she had gone into the water alive and had drowned. It seemed likely that the poor woman had been violently assaulted, choked into unconsciousness and tossed into the river. Within a short time, her identity was established as Hannah Tailford, a known prostitute. The second within three months, and the third in six years. Suspicions of a serial murderer were apparent, but the police needed to investigate the events surrounding her killing before they could draw any conclusions. Hannah had moved from her hometown of Heddon-on-the-Wall, Northumberland, where her family had worked predominantly as miners. She moved to London to start a new life. Before her death, Hannah had worked in a variety of jobs, including as a servant, a waitress and a machinist. She was also working as a prostitute and had, occasionally, supplemented her meagre income with theft. That was not all that Hannah had been doing with her time in London. As the investigation into her death expanded, it became apparent that Hannah had been involved with the production of pornographic films, which was a burgeoning and completely illegal business in the early 1960s. 
The profitability of the industry and the illegal nature of it was a magnet for the criminal syndicates operating in London, and the actresses would have been subject to the moral outrage of the communities they lived in, and subsequently many of them adopted a variety of names to cover their tracks and keep the purient moralists at bay. Hannah Telford was also known as Anne Taylor, Hannah Lynch, Anne Lynch and Theresa Bell. As another form of income, Hannah was discovered to have been working as a socialite. She was attending fancy parties with high-profile guests as a hostess. The waters of her life were as deep and as murky as the waters of the Thames in which she was found. Her attendance at parties with various high-profile political figures would be an interesting development that also involves several other later murdered women. Hannah is considered the first confirmed victim of the press named Jack the Stripper. I have, for many reasons, problems with this. Every time the newspapers take to naming a killer in this way, without reference to the police or the killer calling himself such, it creates a distorted view of the case and can be detrimental to the investigation. The most notable of these instances is the original, Jack the Ripper. Before the delivery of the letter that carried this moniker, the killings were called the Whitechapel Murders. There is a great deal of speculation and even some evidence that points towards a journalist working for the Central News Agency in London being responsible for the letter that led to Rippermania and caused a deluge of spurious communications to swamp the police. The adoption of the name was also such a powerful marketing tool that even the supposed canonical five murders attributed to the character of Jack Ripper may not have actually been by the same perpetrator. In this instance, the name sold a lot of papers at the time, and was an easy way to consolidate a collection of murders that may or may not have been connected into one easily digestible and ultimately dismissible slaughter of women of supposedly low moral character. The salacious nature of the lives of the victims was cause enough to reduce the fear of a predatory psychopath who wouldn't attack a normal or respectable woman. The police put a lot of effort into the investigation of Hannah's murder, and many people were interviewed, without any firm suspects being discovered. But it was only a matter of months before another young woman would perish. Sandra Irene Lockwood was born in East Retford, Nottinghamshire, in 1938. By April 1964, Sandra Lockwood was using her middle name of Irene as her preferred name. On the evening of the 7th, Irene had been outside of a pub in Chiswick and appeared to be loitering. Although with the usual caveats of any statement made about the actions of a working girl that could be contaminated by the moral purience of disapproval because of their occupation. Irene was not an angel though. She had a reputation for scamming clients, often requiring the men who used her services to remove their trousers outside of the bedroom prior to their engagement in the coital trade only to have an accomplice remove anything of value whilst their attention was otherwise engaged. This had led to several people being very angry at her for the subsequent theft. Irene was also involved with the late-night illegal gaming scene, and more than one gambler was left with the impression or suspicion that the games were rigged. Irene, it seems, had a lot of enemies. Men whom she had either ripped off in the bedroom or at the card table were likely to be angry enough to kill over the loss of face and money that this kind of scam would result in. It is also known that Irene had contracted a sexually transmitted disease at the start of 1964. 
On the morning of the 8th of April, 1964, just 300 yards, 275 metres, from where Hannah Tailford was found, Irene's body was discovered on the shores of the Thames. She had been strangled with an unknown ligature, although it is speculated that her underwear had been used, before being thrown in the Thames. Once her identity was established, more details about her life came out. The post-mortem examination revealed that she was four months pregnant at the time of her death, and inquiries soon turned up the knowledge that Irene had been looking to procure the services of an abortionist. As investigations continued, police discovered Irene's journal. In it were details of the illegal card games and her involvement with the racket to scam players out of money. In her diary, she mentioned a man called Kenny. Kenny was soon identified as the caretaker of the Holland Park Tennis Club, a respectable sporting institution that had the misfortune of implying Kenneth Archibald to maintain their property. The moral starchiness of the British establishment, and we'll overlook the obvious double standards at play within their ranks, had delivered some very restrictive constraints on the consumption of alcohol. Drinking laws meant that the regulated sale of alcohol provided a ready and easily exploited black market for illegal drinking dens to flourish and large, untaxed profits could be made. The proliferation of drinking dens was extensive, with garages, lock-ups and factories having second lives as illegal watering holes. Kenneth Archibald, as a caretaker to a licensed premise, had an opportunity to offer the full experience of a furnished bar without the fussy needs of tax or a licence. Because of this connection, 57-year-old Archibald became a person police wanted to speak to. Irene had attended his late-night drinking club, and if he knew Irene Lockwood, did he, despite the lack of evidence, have links with the other murdered women? How extensive was his involvement with her? Were they in a criminal enterprise together to defraud and fleece card players? During his initial questioning, Kenneth Archibald denied having any knowledge of Irene Lockwood, despite being mentioned in her journal and having his telephone number on a card in her room. He wasn't charged on this occasion and was allowed to leave, with police keeping an eye on him as he went about his daily business. It was somewhat of a surprise then, when on April the 27th, 1964, Kenneth Archibald walked into Notting Hill Police Station and confessed to her murder. During his confession, Archibald explained that he had lost his temper with Irene and strangled her and rolled her body into the Thames. The police took him to where the alleged events were supposed to have taken place, the pub in Chiswick where she was last seen alive and the part of the Thames where he said he had killed and stripped her. Whilst there were similarities to the actual events that had led to Irene's murder, there were also discrepancies. From the moment of his confession, Kenneth Archibald had been kept on remand, that is, held in a police station or prison until trial. Whilst the police built their case based on the information they had been given by Archibald, he came to his senses. On the first day of his trial, he changed his plea from guilty to not guilty. The only evidence against Archibald was his own confession, and almost as soon as the trial started, the case collapsed and it ended with Archibald being acquitted. He admitted that he had invented the story of killing because he was depressed and drunk at the time. Archibald had wasted valuable police time and resources. Three days before the forced confession from Archibald, Helen Bartholomew, a 22-year-old woman from Blackpool, was found naked, strangled 
and dumped behind a property in Brentford. Whilst police were investigating the empty claims by Archibald, they also began their search for her killer. Helen was a pretty brunette who wore her hair in a beehive. She was a complicated young woman with a troubled past. She had started her career on the Golden Mile of Blackpool Pleasure Beach, which is an odd assortment of family entertainment and sleazier, more adult attractions. Blackpool has long had the reputation of being a bit dodgy. It was in Blackpool where Helen first became involved with the law and ended up in court and eventually prison. She was convicted of conspiring to roll a client, that is, arrange to meet them and then have associates mug them. In the instance where Helen was convicted, she had arranged to meet a young man by the name of Friend Taylor. He was carrying his month's wages on him at the time, which was around £22. That's £283 in today's money. This was a sizeable chunk of cash. And when three men attacked the couple as they walked along, beating and cutting Friend Taylor's face with a razor, it appeared that Helen was no innocent entangled in a malicious plot. Taylor was taken to a hospital where he was given 18 stitches to the lacerations on his cheek. When he gave a statement to the police, he specifically stated that he had heard Helen shout, Leave it, Jock, he's had enough. A clear indication of her knowledge of the attackers and the purpose of the assault. At her trial, she was convicted of aggravated assault and sent down for four years. That was in October 1962. And by the April of 1964, Helen had been released from prison and had moved south to London to continue with her trade as a prostitute. And so it was that she became to be found naked and strangled not far from a main thoroughfare in Brentford, the latest in the series of killings. Helen was able, in death, to provide the first real evidence in the case. On her body were found small flecks of paint that it seems were indicative of being used in the automotive industry. The police began working on the assumption that the paint had come from the killer's place of work and thereby began to search all the industrial units in that area of London where the painting of a vehicle could have been done. One of these locations was on the Heron Trading Estate in Acton. This was a busy site. There were lots of businesses running from there and the police conducted interviews with peoples involved with the estate. Despite the police inquiries, no further link could be established. This left the police with no suspect, no concrete leads and tangible evidence on one of the five women who had been murdered in a short space of time. Then, as summer was reaching its peak, Scottish-born working girl Mary Fleming was found nude and murdered outside of a house in Berrymead Road, Chiswick. She was discovered shortly after 5am her body had been propped against a garage door. Mary Fleming had been working as a prostitute for 10 years and had a reputation for being a no-nonsense person. The post-mortem examination revealed that Mary had put up a struggle against her attacker, but that she had been stunned by a blow, probably from a fist, directly above her heart. This had incapacitated her enough to stop her fight and gave the killer enough time to strangle her. As with all of the victims, a meticulous search for the body was undertaken and microscopic flecks of paint and metal were found. This suggested that the killer had kept her body for a short while before dumping her. It seemed that she was stored in a lockup where vehicle spraying and light engineering had taken place. The absence of her clothing and personal belongings is also interesting. 
Was he attempting to delay the investigation into her murder, or was he deliberately removing the clothes to keep his trophies? If it's the latter, where are they? Trophy-hunting psychopaths like to keep mementos of their crimes and hold some form of power over them, seemingly for decades. The flecks of paint found on Mary were almost identical to those found on Helen Barthelemy. This was the first major indication that a serial murder was stalking London. Whilst there were similarities with the other murders, the paint was the first real evidence of the two being killed and stored at the same location. Witnesses had heard a car reversing down the road only minutes before her body was found. The killer had, with his last two victims, changed tactics. He was obviously aware of the police activity around the Thames and decided to move his operation to the north of the three previous killings. However, the decision to no longer place the women in the water, as had happened with the victims two and three, meant that trace evidence was being left for discovery. So whilst the killer may have been smart enough to have moved his operation, he wasn't smart enough to realise that the bodies would be able to tell the police much more than he had wanted. On November the 25th, the nude corpse of another working girl was found. This time, she had been left in a car park in the borough of Kensington. Kensington is a place of great contrast, with the ultra-rich and poor living in a dichotomy of excess and absence. But even in the 1960s, Kensington was known for being a swanky upmarket place. Frances Brown had last been seen alive on the 23rd of October by another working girl who had seen her get into a car with a client. The street workers who served the curb crawlers were the preferred hunting ground of this killer. This killing also showed a change in the methods of the murderer. The other bodies had been left openly visible for all, but in the case of Frances Brown it was different. Her body had been left outside of a civil defence building, propped against bins but covered by tree branches and a dustbin lid. This was a curious change in methodology. She was right outside of a building that people were going to enter. She was near to a road that would have had a considerable amount of traffic, both vehicular and on foot, and yet he made the effort of attempting to conceal her corpse. Frances Brown, also known as Margaret McGowan, was a short, dark-haired woman, just like the other victims. This killer had a type. And as the post-mortem examination would show, he had a habit of concealing the body in a garage or lockup where paint was being sprayed. Those same flecks of paint were found on her. She had been completely stripped, including her jewellery. This was another change. The other women had had their jewellery with them when they were discovered, but now even that was taken. Jewellery is an easily identifiable item, and it is risky for a murderer to take. But as the other women had been stripped of their clothes and personal belongings, probably for the killer to keep his trophies, the jewellery would have been easily concealed in his pockets so that he would have been able to fiddle with it whilst talking to people. Much like Myra Hindley had played with the ligature her and Brady used to murder children. There is a curious misconception that psychological profiling is a recent development in the arsenal of crime detection but its use has a long history. Profiles were drawn up of the Whitechapel murderer, Jack the Ripper, and by the 1960s, they were quite a refined set of tools. The profile drawn up of this killer was one of a short man who had a thing for dark-haired women of a stature he was likely to be able to overpower. It is suspected that he had contracted an STD, possibly from a prostitute, and his killings were vengeful acts of violence against the type of woman he had caught it from. 
it is known that he drove a grey or silvery coloured Ford Zodiac or Zephyr, and they do look quite similar from some angles. Given the lighting conditions of the time they were seen, this is an understandable confusion. Identikit pictures of the suspect are confusing, as they appear to show two separate people. One is a squat-faced, dark-haired man with a wide nose and protruding ears, whilst the other official identikit picture shows a thin-faced man with light, sandy-coloured hair and narrow nose with not overly protruding ears. Was it possible that the police were hunting not one, but a pair of killers? Could that explain why there are similarities and yet distinct differences in the murders? As 1964 drove to a close, police were no closer to finding the killer than they were at the start of the year. On January 11th, Bridget O'Hara went missing, and it wasn't until the 16th of February when her body was found on the Heron Trading Estate in Acton. As with the other victims, she was nude, and the body had been stored in close proximity to paint spraying. Only this time, there was a distinct pattern in the paint plex. As the police searched the area, they found, within a short distance, an electricity transformer that had recently been painted and had paint that matched that on Bridget's body. She, too, had been strangled, stripped, stored and finally dumped. No attempt had been made to conceal her body and it seems likely that the killer was very familiar with the estate. The investigation was being led by Chief Superintendent John DuRose of Scotland Yard. A seasoned copper with a record of being able to solve crimes quickly DuRose gave a press conference shortly after the discovery of Bridget O'Hara. It was the first in a series of press conferences, and he was soon saying that his suspect list had been whittled down to 20, then 10, then just to a trio. From the time DuRose made the first press conference, Jack the Stripper stopped his murderous rampage. So, who were the suspects? Next time, on Still at Large. If you have any information about this case, or any of the others featured on Still at Large, please make contact with the relevant police force. Some music was by Duke Deck, and online music AI at dukedeck.com, and some was by me, Desmond Bramley. Still at Large was written, produced and presented by Desmond J. Bramley, and is a tiny yellow dinosaur media production.